before we get started with this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I just need to warn you that the passage ahead is full of vulgar language, particularly at its start, and it is also unbelievably incendiary. If any of that bothers you or anyone listening with you, consider yourself forewarned. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. I have really set it up, haven't I, that we are coming into one dangerous passage, and we are. Of any passage in Inferno in the modern world, this is one that is the most troubling for many, many reasons, as you'll see. It is also one of the most vulgar passages in all of Inferno. We're in the ninth evil pouch of the evil pouches of fraud, which make up the eighth circle of hell. We have been in the sins of fraud for a very, very long time. We have come out of the pit of the fraudulent counselors with Ulysses and Guido de Montefeltro and now come to the next, the ninth, the next to the last of the pits of fraud. We're at Canto 28 of Inferno, lines 22 through 45. This is my English translation. It is not a poetic translation. Rather, it tries to find a way to bring the medieval Florentine into modern English. You can find it on my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com. And you can even drop a comment about this most incendiary passage. If a barrel were missing a stave in the middle or on the side, it wouldn't gap so wide as one guy I saw down there split from his chin down to where we fart. His guts swung between his legs. His viscera were visible, even the sorry sack that turns what we swallow into shit. While I was thunderstruck at the sight of him, he caught my gaze and tore open his chest with his hands, saying, Now see how I rip myself apart. Take a good look at how Mohammed is mangled. Ali wailing walks ahead of me, his face hewed open from his chin to his forehead, and all the others you see here sowed the seeds of either scandal or schism while they were alive. That's why they're hacked open this way. A devil is stationed behind us. He decks each one of this group out just this cruelly with the edge of his sword when we've made the circuit of this sorrowful road. You see, all our wounds have healed before we again come in front of that demon. But who are you hanging around on that escarpment, perhaps buying a little time before the pain your self-recriminations have brought on you? Told you it was incendiary. Mohammed in hell. We have to deal with this passage in so many different ways. We're going to stop it at Mohammed's question and not get to the even more shocking answer that follows it. Oh, wow, they've got two passages in a row that are just unbelievable. This, a shocking figure in hell, Muhammad, and then the next passage, perhaps the most shocking line in all of Inferno. 
despite all this vulgarity, here's what I'd like to do in this episode of the podcast. I'd like to just look at this passage quickly and look at some of the problems inside of it. Then I want to go back. Not basically what I want to do is skip over Muhammad. Then I want to go back and pick Muhammad up and talk about the history of how Muhammad has been seen in Europe up to Dante's day. And then three possible interpretations for his placement here in hell. You might be surprised to find him among the scandal mongers and the schismatics. He himself identifies this pit. Let's just look at where we are and then we'll take a closer look at Muhammad. Passage that we're dealing with at line 22 begins if a barrel were missing a stave in the middle of the side. So we have this idea, right, of barrel making, and one of the staves is missing either the bigger staves that come around the middle or the side. If if one of those staves were missing, the barrel, of course, would gap and it couldn't hold anything. And I call your attention right here back to that opening bit of the passage when Dante the poet says, even with unbound words, who could tell about the blood and the wounds that I now saw? And remember, in that opening bit, he talked about how there's not in neither our discourse nor our memory, is there enough open space to contain so much? And I would just call your attention to that here, the notion of a barrel that is missing one of its staves, and so it's gapped open. It couldn't hold anything. In the same way that Dante worries there's not enough space to contain the words to explain this pit, so here we get to a barrel that couldn't contain anything, that has a stave missing. It wouldn't gap that barrel so wide as the one guy I saw down there split from his chin down to where we fart. And I just want to stop right there. The phrase we fart in the medieval Florentine is actually a reflexive verb. I could have translated it one farts, split from his chin down to where one farts, but the reflexive is sometimes used as a plural, and I think this is important. Remember, again, back to those opening lines, even with unbounded words, who could tell about the blood and the wounds that I now saw, because neither our discourse nor our memory has the open space to contain so much. Our, we fart. There is an emphasis here on commonality, on a way in which we are all in this together. Our discourse, our memory, our bodily functions. Inside this emphasis on us, what we do, we have the schismatics who divide things in half. I think that's important to see it right at the beginning, despite the vulgarity. And yes, Muhammad is split from his chin down essentially to his anus, but it is stated even more vulgarly than that in the Florentine. We want to come back to why it's so vulgar in a minute. Let's just pass on down into the passage. His guts swung between his legs, his viscera were visible, even the sorry sack that turns what we swallow into shit. And believe me, the Florentine is just that vulgar. It's not even what we eat, which would denote some kind of pleasure. This is just the mechanics of swallowing and the digestive processes. This is as low down in the body as you can get. We're coming way down 
toward the anus. And if you think about Robert Durling's point, which we have talked about in the past on this podcast, that Inferno basically follows the body down from the brain to the eyes to the throat. It goes down the body itself. We are now coming toward the lowest bits of hell and we are approaching, well, we would say the ass end of things. We're going to get even closer to that later in Inferno, but let's just say we're getting close to it now. While I was thunderstruck at the sight of him, the passage goes on, he caught my gaze, tore open his chest with his hands, saying, now see how I rip myself apart. Intriguingly, Mohammed is tearing himself open. Later we learn that there is a demon somewhere in this pit on the road that splits them all with his sword. But here in this moment, Mohammed is ripping himself apart. This will become important when we think about interpretations of this passage. So let's just hold it and go on. Take a good look at how Mohammed is mangled. Ali, wailing, walks beside him. Ali, that's Muhammad's son-in-law. We'll come back to that in a minute and say why that's important. His face hewn open from his chin to his forehead. So if Muhammad is split from his chin to his butt, then Ali is split from his chin up. So together, they make a full split of a person. If they were both split completely, of course, there would just be two halves walking along. Each of them is split in such a way as to create a full split of a person inside the schismatics. And that's what Muhammad says are here. All the others you see here sowed either the seeds of scandal or schism while they were alive. That's where we're hacked open this way. Let's just stop a minute and just pull this apart. We have to understand the word scandal, not as in a tabloid sense, not as in some kind of celebrity gossip, but scandal in the sense of the word skandalon in Greek and the way the word is used in the New Testament. The word skandalon in the Greek, which becomes scandal in English, is a word that actually means stumbling block. It's as if you put a boulder in front of somebody, and as they're walking along, they trip. In Matthew 15, 12, Jesus warns about putting scandalon, a boulder, in front of young, innocent believers who then trip on it, and how if you do such things to the innocent young believers, you yourself are subjected to much harsher punishments. Scandal doesn't mean gossip. What it means is that you put a stumbling block in the faith journey of someone else. You put something down that makes them split, trip, fall down. Okay, there's the word scandal. And then the word schism. They sowed the seeds of either scandal or schism. According to Aquinas, in part two, book two, question 39, answer one, schism is essentially that which is opposed to unity. We're talking here about people who take a fundamental unity and they ruin it. One of the things we have to think about right here in terms of dealing with the Prophet Muhammad in this passage is which of these is he guilty of? Is he guilty of scandal or schism? Almost every commentator comes down on the side of schism. 
I'm going to tell you that I probably come down on the side of stumbling block or scandalon or scandal. Other figures in this pit, in fact, will be indeed schismatics who try to cut apart the body politic or the church. I think Muhammad may be the exception, and I think we should just think about that as we work through Muhammad's place in this pit. Let's move on to talk more about the passage. A devil is stationed behind us, Muhammad says. He decks each one of this group out just as cruelly with the edge of his sword when we've made the circuit of the sorrowful road. So we now know that there is a devil behind them somewhere. This devil hacks them apart. And as they then walk around this circle of hell, they're healed. They, they, they must sew back together. We can imagine that both Muhammad and Ali are joined back together. And by the time they get back around to that devil, he hacks them again. What, what do I want to say? This is a non-healing journey. It is Unlike Dante, the pilgrim's journey, it is circular, unlike Dante, the pilgrim's journey. Dante, the pilgrim's journey may spiral. They do turn left, turn left, except a few times when they turn right in Inferno, (laughs) two times actually. And then later, when we get up in Purgatorio, they'll be turning right, turning right, turning right. Nonetheless, if you just drew a line while there are these turns inside this line, it is nonetheless overall a linear course following slowly the circularity of the various pits of hell, the cornices of purgatory, or the rings of heaven. It is still a linear journey, and this is unlike Muhammad's journey, which would be forever and ever around and around in a non-healing journey. The promise of healing here is never fulfilled. I mean, listen, this is this is what happens in schism. The idea in schism, or perhaps scandal, but schism, is that I'm going to divide off you people, and we over here are going to become much purer because I've gotten rid of you, the impurity, who don't believe correctly or don't believe in this new way I've discovered. Schism promises a kind of purity healing. Think about the Protestant Reformation. Think about Calvin and Zwingli. Think about how Luther operated. It promises a kind of purity, but here we can see that this promise that the schismatics often hold out of healing into purity is in fact never fulfilled. And you'll also notice that the actual cutting of them is done off stage. So we only see the results. This must surely play into the notion of scandal, as in stumbling blocks, and schism. We see its results. How it goes down, how you decide to create a schism inside the church, how you decide to break off the Byzantine church from the Western church, how you decide to create various heresies that split the church open, much of that decision and that study that leads to that decision happens in private, offstage. But what we see is the results of it. We see people in this pit torn apart, the body in pain, as we talked about in the last episode of this podcast. Let's just finish off this 
passage and then come back and talk a lot more about Muhammad. But who are you, Muhammad asks, hanging around on that escarpment, perhaps buying a little time before the pain your self-recriminations have brought on you? So Muhammad doesn't recognize that Dante the Pilgrim is alive. He, in that way, is reminiscent of Pope Nicholas III in the 19th canto, who is upside down in his hole. And he is also reminiscent of Guido da Montefeltro, who says, well, I can tell you my whole life story because no one ever gets back out of this place, thereby doubting whether Dante is actually alive. Muhammad, Nicholas III, Guido de Montefeltro, all these don't recognize Dante as alive. This will certainly change in Purgatorio. In Purgatorio, <laughs> almost everybody is going to remark on the fact that the pilgrim is still in his body. Why? Because on Mount Purgatory, he's going to cast a shadow. They're out in the sun at this point, and he casts a shadow, and they're all going to say, what is this, somebody casting a shadow in Purgatory? Here, of course, he doesn't cast a shadow because it's too dark, and people can actually mistake him for one of the damned. But again, let's go back to what we have already discovered. The poem is starting to be tied together by its internal references. And there are ways in which you could think further about how Muhammad is tied to Pope Nicholas III in his hole and tied to Guido da Montefeltro because he's being tied here to them by not recognizing the pilgrim and the entire poem is becoming well, the big fancy word is meta-referential. That is, it's referring back to itself, to cite itself, to contain itself. I haven't watched The Simpsons in a, a decade? I don't know, a decade. Okay, I haven't watched The Simpsons in a decade. And it turns out we get Disney Plus or Disney whatever it is free with our phone carrier. So last night we watched an episode of The Simpsons from the current season. Now, let me tell you, back in the day, despite all my Dante highfalutin ways, I was a great Simpsons fan. And the early seasons, I bet yeah, I could recite some of those episodes line by line. What I was amazed in watching that new season one episode from it, and I don't think I need to go back, but one episode from it, is how many references they made to previous episodes of The Simpsons. The Simpsons has become a hall of mirrors in which they are constantly referencing The Simpsons inside of episodes of The Simpsons. If you watch The Simpsons long enough, you know what's funny about Mr. Burns saying ahoy hoy when he answers the phone. In the same way, <laughs> I just compared Dante to The Simpsons. In the same way, comedy is starting to become meta-referential. It's wrapping itself up. And because it's doing this, we are then called to see the resonances between Pope Nicholas III with the Simoniacs and Guido de Montefeltro, two other sinners who don't recognize Dante as dead, who think he perhaps is one of the damned. In this way, the poem offers itself up to an increasing depth of meaning through its meta-referential techniques. Okay, I've danced around it long enough. Let's go back to Muhammad. Yes, Muhammad is in the poem. Yes, he is here amongst the schismatics and the scandalmongers. Not scandalmongers, again, as in gossip tabloids, but people who throw stumbling blocks in the way of faith or in the way of belief. Let's talk for just a second about the history of 
Muhammad in the West and of Islam in the West. From about 700 Common Era, a little before perhaps, but about 700 Common Era, so after the death of Muhammad, till about 900 Common Era, the West is very much aware of the Islamic presence and the growing caliphates across the Middle East, what we now call the Middle East. From about 700 Common Era to 900 Common Era, the West's attitude toward the caliphates is essentially the same as the attitude toward Babylon or Assyria in the Old Testament. In what Christians call the Old Testament, the prophets see Babylon and Assyria as foreign, non-believing powers that are being raised up by God to judge Israel. In the same way, many writers from about 700 to 900, so we're talking what would be called the quote-unquote dark ages, see the Islamic caliphates as this kind of coming judgment of God that is being brought on Christians from afar, Christians who are not fully following their religious dictates. In other words, the basic message of Islam in Christianity is repent, hurry, repent quickly, lest God bring the enemy to punish you with his swift justice. This changes with the beginning of the Crusades and Godfrey of Bouillon's giant walk from essentially what is now Belgium to the Levant in the First Crusade. This shift moves from Islam being seen as the surge of God to its being seen as a bastion of infidelity. And I think you should see that shift as an important bit of, dare I say it, early colonialism. After all, the Crusades are about finding territory and conquering territory. They're an early expression of colonialism. In fact, you can argue that colonialism in the Americas is an outgrowth of the crusading ethic, but that's a bigger question. It's going to involve Shakespeare's The Tempest. (laughs) It's going to involve Robinson Crusoe. It's going to involve a lot more than we can actually talk about in this episode of the podcast. So let's just nix that and say that this is an early example of colonial thinking. And in that, Islam is changed from being a warning device to being an infidelity that is somehow, um, what I'm going to say, polluting the Holy Land. But we should also say that the attitude toward Islam was not monolithic. There were many calls for coexistence, peace, and even writings about the parallels between Christian theology and Islamic theology in the 13th and 14th centuries, particularly on the Italian peninsula. Now, I can't tell you that Dante read any of these. I can't tell you that he knew it. There's no smoking gun. I can't tell you that he knew any of these. But I can tell you they did exist. And I can tell you there were calls for peace. There were calls for truth 
truce. There were calls to even say, hey, we have something in common, these monotheistic religions. So this idea that somehow the West looked over and saw the Islamic lands and thought of them as a bastion of impurity is overstated. The attitude toward what is often called the Saracens is complicated. It is complicated because Frederick II himself down in Sicily is allowing all kinds of Islamic scholars into his court. It's complicated because so much of Western learning is being preserved by Islamic scholars, both on the Iberian Peninsula in modern-day Spain, even in the south of Italy itself. And there's a reason Muhammad appears here in this pouch that starts with a whole discussion of Puglia or southern Italy, because that's where the Islamic presence was most pronounced. Why is Muhammad here? There are three possible answers. One, there is a common myth that goes around inside of the commentariat that Muhammad was a renegade cardinal of the church, believe it or not, that he had even been promised the papacy. And when he didn't get the papacy, he became enraged and therefore went off and founded this religion in order to punish the Christians for not giving him the papacy. In a lot of the commentary, they talk about this as if it's general knowledge. And maybe this story is general knowledge, but it's not for Dante. And here's why I know that. Because this story is referred to in Brunetto Latini's Tresor. I'm telling you, if you really want to go deep with Dante, you really have to go to Brunetto's Tresor. After all, that is what Brunetto himself says in his appearance in Inferno, remember my tresor. Dante is telling us that tresor is really important. And one of the ways I can say it's important is because this idea that Mohammed is a renegade cardinal who founded a schismatic sect, monotheistic sect, in order to punish Christians for not giving him the papacy, well, it's right there in Brunetto Latini's work. That's where Dante gets it from. It's not floating around in the water. It's right there in a book that Dante treasures. Two, there is a curious reference in this passage to Muhammad's mangling. Remember, he's split open so that his viscera, even his intestines and his bowels are hanging out. Well, Maria Esposito Frank, a dentista, claims that the reference here is more complicated than you might think because Arius, the heretic of the Arian heresy, Arius is said to have died in exactly this way. He fell headlong into a ditch or a latrine and his bowels burst out. Frank claims that many medievals would recognize the death of Arius in the mangling of Muhammad in this passage. And of course, the Arian heresy, the heresy that Jesus 
is a created being, the son of God, but created by God and not contemporaneously divine with God, the Arian heresy racked the church for centuries. What Frank's point here is that Mohammed is mirroring Arius as potentially a, what do we want to say, a heretic, although a heretic of a certain kind, uh, schismatic. A third way to think about Mohammed I got from the dentista Carla Mallet in an article called Mohammed in Hell. And this is a bit complicated, so let me try to explain this to you. There are two, according to Mallet, two Latin translations of the Quran current in Italy while Dante is writing. We don't know if Dante saw any of these. However, if he did see the Latin translations of the Quran, he may have seen Surah 94, the 94th Surah in the Quran, in which essentially God claims to have opened up Muhammad's chest to purify his heart. This becomes later part of the mirage, the night journey that Muhammad takes where Muhammad tours the afterlife. We're going to talk so much more about this later in comedy because it is from the mirage that Dante may have gotten some of his ideas about how the afterlife works, but much more of that ahead. Let's just say right now on the night journey that Muhammad takes when he goes up to Allah and sees the afterlife and all the heavens, there is this bit in which God purifies Muhammad's heart by essentially opening his chest and pouring um, spring water, a special kind of spring water, onto his heart to thereby purify him and bestow him with all sorts of knowledge. If that is the case, then perhaps this explains the line, now see how I rip myself apart. Because in this passage, Muhammad is ripping himself. If Dante knows the Islamic tradition of Muhammad's journey to the afterlife, then Dante may here be saying, no, it's not God who ripped you open. It's you yourself who ripped yourself open. It's nonetheless tribalistic and nonetheless dismissive. But it may be that Dante is playing off certain resources to create this portrait of Muhammad, who is not seen amongst the heretics, nor seen amongst any cruel mass murderers. You could expect that in medieval Florentine, that he would be back there with the plunderers and murderers, given what the West thought of the caliphates. You could expect that, but instead he's here with the schismatics, and dare I say, the scandal mongers. Is that it? That Muhammad has thrown a stumbling block of monotheism into the Christian path. After all, Muhammad is offering another monotheism and therefore throwing a scandalon into the path of Christians. In fact, one of the major concerns, even this late in the Middle Ages, is that there are lots of Christians converting to Islam. If that's the case, then Muhammad's way is itself a stumbling block to the Christian progress of faith. Maybe that's why Muhammad is here and why I tend to see him more as a scandal figure 
than as a schismatic. You'll note that Muhammad is with his son-in-law, Ali, and Ali is the one whose face is ripped apart from the chin to the forehead. Ali married Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, and after Muhammad died, Ali took over the caliphate in 656 Common Era and held the caliphate until he was assassinated in 661. You may know, and if you don't, you better know, that Ali's succession to the caliphate, to the head of the caliphate, is the primary reason for the split between Shiite and Sunni Islamic peoples to this day. Notice that Dante seems to be aware of the Shiite and Sunni split in this passage. Notice that the schismatics, if that's what they are, the splitters, are then themselves split, Muhammad and Ali, thereby bringing forward more of the doublings, the dualisms in this passage. But this passage may be more complicated even than first blush because of one specific word. When Muhammad explains how they're tortured, he says the devil is stationed behind us. He decks out each one of this group just as cruelly with the edge of his sword. It's that word group. The word in the medieval Florentine is risma. It is its first use in Italian. This is its first known use in this line. And it is a direct word out of Arabic. The Arabic word is a reference to bundles of rags used to make paper. A better way to translate this may be he decks out each one of this ream of paper just this cruelly with the edge of a sword. There's an emphasis on paper, on writing here with this word risma that Dante is picking up directly from the Arabic in a passage about Muhammad. And in fact, Dante rhymes this word risma with a word to mean to deck out. When it says he decks us out, that's the rhyming word for risma in the passage, thereby further underlining the notion of rags. If they're decked out this way and split apart, they themselves are, shall we say, ragged, just like the bundle of rags used to make paper. Thereby, Dante has increased the Arabic valence of the word by making sure we see it by rhyming it with a word to mean to clothe or to deck out. The Islamic underpinnings of this passage may be more profound than you think. And here's the big one. The Islamic underpinnings of the comedy are definitely bigger than you think. In episodes far ahead of us, we are going to constantly be dealing with the problem of Islam and Dante because it is a giant problem and Dante may be far more aware and even in the debt of Islamic thinking than you might first imagine. And the final vision, when we get up to the top of Paradiso, the final vision of God, the look of God, well, it probably comes straight out of Islamic architecture. 
more about all of that in all the episodes ahead. I told you this was incendiary. There's no way to make it easy. Dante is clearly a man of his time, a man of the crusading ethic, although he may be starting to change his mind and he may be questioning exactly how much it's worth to put the body in pain. To get farther into that question, please subscribe to this podcast. Please rate it. If you wouldn't mind, drop a comment on any platform that you're on. I could really use a comment. It would help a great deal for this podcast. I hope I've complicated this passage for you. I'm not going to read it again. I'm going to come back to it and read it with the answer to Muhammad's question, who are you, in the next episode so that it reads as one longer bit. I kind of want to leave this right now in pieces all on the floor. So let me leave it there all scattered about on the floor around you, ripped apart, mangled, well, shall we say, a pack of rags. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.